from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. It is a critical moment. If we do not act with urgency, we would then severely undermine the liberal order. Brexit means Brexit, and we're going to make a success of it. The wind is back in Europe's sights. We have now a window of opportunity, but it will not stay open forever. Hello, you're listening to the CER podcast with me, Beth Oppenheim, and I'm recording this from a swelteringly hot London. And on the line from Brussels, I have Camino Mortera Martinez. Hi, Camino. Hi, also from scorching hot Brussels. We're going to be discussing the EU security union on which Camino has just written a paper. Europe has faced some pretty major security challenges over the past few years in the form of the migration crisis. The desperation here is incredible. They've been pushing women through and manhandling little children over their heads to get them out of this crush. The Croatian government told us that it was ready, it was prepared. It is not. And also in several terrorist attacks. It certainly seems that Brussels airport has been targeted in a terrorist attack. And these expose some quite fundamental weaknesses in the EU's security architecture. So Camino, how has Europe responded to these security challenges? So as we all know, 2015 and 2016 were not necessarily very good years for the European Union. We had, uh, as you very rightly said, a number of terrorist attacks on, on European soil. And at the same time, uh, the European Union was kind of undergoing uh, its worst uh, refugee crisis since uh, World War II. The two events taken together plunged the European Union into a state of panic. The, the response of the, of the Juncker Commission um, was to put security first. This Europe that protects was supposed to deliver a sort of if you wish, single market for security. So basically an area where, uh, in the words of Juncker, a security officer, a police officer in one member state would share information in the same way with a colleague in another member state as he or she would colleague in his own country. And this follows up the shortcomings in intelligence and security cooperation uh, that were laid bare by the Paris and Brussels attacks in particular. We all remember how the Paris attackers uh, kind of fled to Brussels without being detected and spent uh, a number of months here before they were arrested uh, after a spectacular uh, lockdown in this town, which, ha- which this town had never seen. So obviously the European Union needed to do something about that and they, they came up with this idea of a security union, which is in my view merely a rebranding of previous Uh, plans that the European Union had on security, like the European Agenda on Security and the likes, uh, but is, if you wish, a very clever uh, one. So, so an idea that you know you do have, you, you do need to have this single market on security that I was I was uh, talking about. And then I don't know if that was coincidental or not, uh, but it was uh, very convenient for sure that this idea of a security union kind of about roughly at the same time that Britain held its EU referendum and the, the European Union needed to do something about Brexit Britain. So the UK was still entitled to a portfolio. So this idea of a security union was vague, yet powerful enough to attract an outgoing member with a very strong record on security. And hence, Julian King, who was an experienced British diplomat, was named as the first ever security union commissioner in 2016. So Camino, did you want to explain the concept? So the five areas? 
So the way the security union works, and again, it's a, it's a very un-European Union structure because it doesn't really have a, a proper uh, directory general, which is the equivalent of a ministry uh, in a member states. Uh, and it kind of covers a number of topics. It's very horizontal and it drags on the experience and expertise from different departments of the European institutions. The whole structure focuses on five main priority areas. These are data collection and sharing, border controls, terrorism and organized crime, cybersecurity, both in the classic sense uh, of the world, so protection of critical infrastructures, but also uh, sort of like uh, cyber crimes and, and the likes, and also the new cyber challenges, which in my view are uh, basically 5G and artificial intelligence. And finally, the security union focuses on cooperation uh, with third countries, which is not something that we had seen before uh, the migration and security crisis. Right. So the Commission has just reported back on the progress that it's made on the security union. So Julian King, the Commissioner, as you've said, he've, he said that we've already made big strides towards an effective and genuine security union. What do you think? What's your view? Do you think that the EU has genuinely made great strides? I think so. I mean, I think the security union has a mixed records. One thing that is important to, to retain, in my view, is that the European Union has done more on security issues in the last two years than it, that it, that it had done uh, over the, the past decade. That's sort of a welcoming development, but with it, it also brings a number of problems. And these are how to balance civil rights in the times of populism. Again, both the terrorist attacks and the migration crisis put pressure on EU leaders to deliver solutions and very quickly. And this is not necessarily, you know, the best way to, to pass security measures. But then there are other challenges, like, for example, the classic row in between what the European Commission thinks and what, uh, say, member states and the European Parliament think. We are seeing how some member states are not necessarily on board uh, with everything that the Commission is suggesting and they, they are not necessarily implementing all the laws which they should have done in a very stringent way. And we are also seeing sort of differences in between the European Parliament and the Commission because of what, what I was talking uh, about before, this, this, this tension in between civil rights, individual liberties uh, and hardcore security focus on, say, for example, the use of data so all this makes the records of the security union uh, a little bit mixed, as I was saying before, uh, and it makes it so that uh, it, you know it creates a number of problems that the next European administration will have to face uh, heads on uh, as soon as they take office. And what do you think? Do you think that the security union does strike the right balance between protecting human rights and security, or is the balance quite off? Well, I think it's very difficult to strike a balance in between security and individual rights, uh, especially in exceptional times. And I do think that we are living uh, rather exceptional times, both politically and, and, and sort of like geopolitically, if, if you wish. We are in a world of very assertive worldwide leaders. We are seeing how um, the Russian uh, government still not <laughs> sort of stepping back uh, its aggressions towards, um, towards the West, and not only uh, through conventional means, but obviously uh, through other means like hybrid uh, warfare, including cyber uh, attacks and the likes. To that, we have to add uh, a very assertive 
and an up and coming you know problem which in my view is china and and the way that um, the chinese us uh, trade war and security wars uh, are going to impact Europe and are impacting Europe at the moment. And we're also seeing uh, a much more assertive again and developing Africa. So all these, all these problems uh, make it so that, I mean, EU leaders feel compelled to take bold and short-term uh, solutions. We are also in a world of populism and we are seeing how uh, populist leaders are emerging everywhere uh, in the world and not only, you know, in, 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 in perhaps less old democracies, but also I'm thinking of, of some other countries like the oldest uh, parliamentary democracy in the world, who just elected uh, Boris Johnson. In, in the times of populism, it's very, very difficult to sort of ask EU leaders or, or leaders in general uh, to refrain from taking, again, aggressive uh, decisions on security because sort of they feel that they will be losing uh, their votes to the populist. And that obviously impacts the way the European Union is able to protect uh, individual rights and civil rights. So I think the problem is that by having delivered, uh, again, a very ambitious uh, security agenda, which has which has indeed closed uh, many of the gaps, of the security gaps that we've seen. The security union has managed to both fence off critics, uh, those thinking that the European Union had lost control of its borders, had lost control of you know, the safety of its citizens and the likes uh, back in 2015 and 2016, but it also has had the paradoxical effect of emboldening populists because it does kind of give the, the impression that the European Union is in a state of emergency, of constant emergency, of constant panic, that we need to pass security laws uh, all the time. And that reduces the accountability of, of leaders, comes to enforcing individual rights, uh, but also reduces the power that people have on, on demanding those, those individual rights. So all in all, I think the development would have been very difficult to strike in any normal circumstances. I think migration is a particularly interesting example now because in some of the work that you've done and that we've done together, we've talked about how even though the numbers of migrants has, has come down significantly since the crisis in 2015, we're not really in a crisis situation anymore. Still, the narrative of crisis persists and that has an impact on the way that migration and security policies are being formulated still. And perhaps there's not as much of a need anymore for those crisis mode assertive security policies but the narrative persists and thus it's difficult, as you say, because of populist pressure to shift from those more assertive policies. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, I think that we've moved from crisis of facts, right? So, I mean, the facts were very clear uh, in 2015. We did have uh, over a million people uh, arriving uh, to Europe through a regular means. And I do think, I mean, I know that not everybody shares this opinion, but I do think that this number grants the name crisis because we had a, a near collapse of Schengen and that was a very serious problem. And we did have terrorist attacks and also based on the fact that we didn't have a proper security cooperation within the Schengen area. So those were the were sort of the, the factual crisis, right? Uh, but ever since we've moved from those facts to a political crisis and a crisis of narratives, a crisis of what you were very, very rightly saying, populists banging uh, the table saying there are too many people coming to Europe, which is not true. Stop them from coming or all these people are security risk, which is, again, not true. The problem is how, do, how mainstream parties are basically vacating the security and migration narrative and leaving it to more radical forces on both sides of the spectrum. So now, if you think about the migration debates or if you think about the security debates, 
they're basically binary options, right? So either you are pro-open borders, pro-rescue migrants uh, at sea, pro-being lenient on, on security checks and all these sort of things, or you are on the other side pro-sort uh, of shutting down the borders, pro-Salvini uh, kind of policies. And I think that's a fallacy. There is always a, a much healthier middle ground. But unfortunately, neither of the mainstream political parties which are ruling Europe at the moment are actually owning that narrative. And, and that's again, a very uh, rational, uh, you know, choice, because obviously this is such a hot uh, and toxic political potato that is not going get, to get you anywhere. So it's much easier to dodge the topic altogether. But I think it's also much more complicated. And also because of, of the problems that I was mentioning before and the, and the geopolitics of the world at the moment, it's going to be impossible for the next EU administration led by von der Leyen, Michel, Borrell and the likes to actually dodge these questions anymore because even if they want to stay neutral and not to take part in the debates, there is no way that, for example, the European Union cannot take a stance on, on Huawei and China, if only because the US is going to force, force it to. There is no way that the European Union will not, be able, will not take a stance on migration in Africa uh, because events uh, will force it to. So at the end of the day, you know, vacating the narrative is going to do nothing for mainstream politicians, but actually take uh, the boats away from them when they are forced to face uh, the problems uh, again head on. Absolutely. So you're saying that the EU needs to face these problems head on. Let's imagine that you're the EU's security commissioner. That's assuming that there's going to be another one. What areas would worry you and where do you think you'd be trying to make changes to the way that the security union is panning out? I mean, nobody, including me, knows where the, the EU's next big crisis will come from. But I think we can make some educated guesses. In my view, there will be three major security questions, which again will, will haunt uh, the next EU administration from the outset. The first one is migration. The second one is disruptive technologies. And I'm talking about, uh, again, 5G and artificial intelligence. And the third one is China. I kind of have the feeling that the three are interconnected, uh, so you, we cannot take about migration without talking about what kind of relationship does the European Union want to have with Africa. We cannot talk about Africa without thinking of the influence that uh, other uh, global powers have on the continent, and I'm talking um, how China is lever leveraging its infrastructure expenditure in Africa uh, for foreign policy and security purposes. And we can obviously not talk about China without thinking about the role that it has on, on the development of disruptive technologies, which also link to, to transatlantic relations, because these technologies basically all come from outside of Europe, which basically reduces the, the, the power that the European Union has in regulating, not their use, because the, we are very good in Europe at regulating use, <laughs> the use of things, but actually having an influence on how these technologies um, are uh, designed and, and developed elsewhere. Um, elsewhere. So I think these three topics are going to be massive for the next administration. And I think the Commission, the EAS, the Council of Ministers, uh, but also the European Council will have to, to, to work very closely together to address them because, again, for example, if you want to have a proper China policy, you need to think uh, not only about security, but you also need to think of foreign policy. You, you, you need to go beyond the classic 
thinking. Uh, you need to think industrial policy, but you also need to think uh, competition policy and, and taxation and all these sort of things. And that applies as well uh, for the way that Europe wants to, to, to regulate uh, disruptive technologies, which is very much based on, on how, how the European Union will tax them. Security will be more than ever a cross-cutting issue and will impact everything from economic policy to the eurozone to foreign policy to competition to foreign policy so you 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 will not be able to look at it in an isolated way anymore uh, which in my view also begs the question of how the next eu administration will organize its departments right so we've been kind of working on the assumption that the security union will continue is that a a fair assumption what do you think the fate is going to be of the security union would it be able to survive the commission's reshuffle right so one of the the advantage and the disadvantage of the of the security union as i was saying before is that it's very flexible right it's a a sort of a a newly minted concept that came out, out of nowhere and then took an institutional shape in a way that we've never seen in this town. So that allows you to do whatever you want with it, really. Uh, that allows you to sort of like shut it down the, in the next months and, and, and sort of like go and put the, the files with, with the relevant departments. Or it allows you to uh, boost it and say, okay, we're going to have a vice president for the security union. And under this vice president, we will have um, several commissioners uh, working on different portfolios, uh, from digital to border security to Africa. Right. And could you just say a little bit more, Camino, about what role you think that there might be for the UK in the security union after Brexit? Do you think that the UK will find a way to be brought into the EU security architecture or will the UK be left out in the cold? What do you think? Now, in my view, what will happen with the security union in the short term will depend a lot on what will happen with Brexit Britain. If, as it now seems uh, scarily feasible, we are going to uh, experience a no-deal Brexit on the 31st of October, the European Union security people will probably breath a sigh of relief in a way because it will, it will, um, it will read them from, from the whole puzzle of what to do with, the, with a British commissioner and how to square the circle of having Britain represented in the institutions while at the same time the countries looked for the exit door. However, again, obviously, uh, content-wise, it will be a problem for the European Union because having Britain inside the European Union, when it comes to the European Union being a, a security provider, in my view, um, it's very important. But that's another question. But if we have, say, a, a general election or a vote of non-confidence on Prime Minister Boris Johnson, then we will probably have an extension of the Brexit uh, deadline again. And there, we will have a problem with the security union itself because the European Union obsessed as it is with procedures will have to have a uh, UK commissioner in order to comply with the treaties and in order to comply with the legal rules. So what would they do? I mean, I think the the obvious, you know, the easiest uh, path would be to sort of extend the mandate of Julian Kim not asking him to go through hearings again and and again that's assuming that you know Boris Johnson thinks uh, of the most rational thing to do uh, when it comes to Europe which is not necessarily the case if he does indeed get an extension of his term then we will see um, the security union sort of department uh, being extended for the time that that Britain is still uh, within the European Union 
But again, I mean, everything is so volatile at the moment, so we don't even know whether Boris Johnson will, you know, just decide that he wants to appoint some Brexit loony as a, as a British commissioner if there is an extension, and then obviously the European Parliament will say no, and then we will have a, a, a huge institutional problem again. So at the moment, what will happen with the security union is very, very uncertain, and I think that really matters because whatever happens with the institutional side of things is going to impact uh, the way the incoming administration is thinking of the content uh, reshuffle. Uh, so if von der Leyen's team now have to think, okay, maybe we will, have, we will still have a security union commissioner you know, in November 1st, then they might refrain from, from thinking more strategically about the reshuffle until Brexit is done and dusted. And I think that would be sort of a pity for the European Union, but also for the future cooperation in between Britain and the European Union on security matters. Right, thank you, Camino. So really, it sounds like, as with anything Britain's involved with at the moment, we have a state of pure uncertainty, something that uh, British people are getting rather used to. This is a subject that you're going to be returning to, I'm sure, and listeners can read your paper on the security union on the CER website. For now, the podcast is off to take a break for the summer, but we're going to be back in your ears in September. So thank you very much, Camino. Thank you, Beth. Bye. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.